Welcome to another episode of Edgewood Sermon Audio. This is Pastor Matt Harmless, and this week you'll be hearing from Pastor Paul preaching from Colossians. This is his eighth sermon, or I'm sorry, his sixth sermon from Colossians, and it comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. Uh, if you have any questions about this sermon or any of our sermons, know that you can always reach out to myself or Pastor Paul for any questions that you might have. Uh, just by looking for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. Gracious God, we come again before you, dependent, humble beggars looking for food. And you are the bread of life. You are the water of life. You're the well that never dries up. Your spirit is the one who brings us you. And God, we ask that your spirit would work this morning, that your spirit would give us assurance of our salvation in you and courage to persevere and to continue in the faith. We ask for your spirit to help me to be clear and um, accurate and uh, I love you, Lord, and we depend on you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We are in the book of Colossians, and we have been looking at this first chapter uh, where Paul opens up telling the Colossians that he has heard amazing things going on in that church in Colossae. And it, this, uh, this guy named Epaphras came and taught them the way of Christ. And they've seen the gospel increasing and bearing fruit in their own lives. And then we saw Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And in that prayer, he thanks God for what he's doing. But he also asked them to continue to give, fill them with the spirit, wisdom, um, all wisdom and spiritual knowledge. And cause them to continue and to be filled with all power and all his glorious might. And when Paul does that, he, he realizes who he's praying to. He didn't forget, but he's like, fill them with the power, all the glorious might, and joyfully giving thanks to God the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. And he starts thinking about these things and he goes, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have forgiveness, redemption, forgiveness of sins. And that causes Paul to just start to write this hymn. Like he's thinking about Jesus and he says, this Jesus is the supreme one. And we saw there in those next verses after that, Jesus rescued us from sin and darkness. Then Paul's like, this Jesus who did that, he's the supreme one over creation. And remember, he holds it all together. We saw that it's all through him and for him. And then we looked at the second half of that hymn of him just rejoicing. And he says, Jesus is supreme, not over just creation, but supreme over the new creation. And we saw that the church is that longed for new people that had been prophesied all since the garden. And now Paul turns from, okay, whew, it's almost like you can hear him. Oh, okay, now, where was I? And he says, you. 
He now you'll see you in the passage. Let's look. We're looking at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. Let's read it together here. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And I've got a typo there at the end, blood of the cross. That's from the last passage, so ignore those last couple of words. <laughs> As I like to do when I, I kind of start off our the, the message, I, so I'd like to just wrap it up. So in case I die in the middle of the heart sermon, you guys already know the main point. <laughs> Actually, I have other reasons, but here's the, here's the main point of that paragraph. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus reconciles rebels to God. You and me, we're all a bunch of idiots, right? We know that. We're rebels. We're not just idiots. We're rebels. And this passage shows us that God, through Jesus, reconciles us to God. That's the point of the passage. We can go home, right? Well, let's expand it a little bit. So we saw in the passage, the paragraph right before this, Paul says that through Jesus, God was reconciling to himself all things. To reconcile. Now, that goes right into the next passage because that's the main verb in the next paragraph is the word to reconcile. But we need to ask ourselves, I didn't really get into this the last time I preached, what is reconciliation? And I think the best way to understand is with this picture. That is unreconciled, right? I think it's a helpful illustration too because their backs are to each other. And if you would picture this like you and God, apart from Jesus, his back is to you. It has to be. He must turn his back on sin and rebellion. But reconciliation is making things right. It's bringing two people together or a relationship back together. So if I was to summarize what reconciliation is, it's this. It's simple. Well, it's not a simple thing to do, but the simple definition. <laughs> Rest, restoring a ruptured relationship. Nice bunch of R's. Should help you easy to remember. What is reconciliation? It's restoring a ruptured relationship. Well, what's the ruptured re relationship? Right? We saw it in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sin, and boom. The relationship with God and all in Adam have been now separated from God. That's the relationship that needed to be restored. That is the relationship that needed reconciliation. And we saw in our last time of gathering that it's not just people, it's cosmic. It's everything. Everything was against him. Everything was broken. And in Christ, on the cross and through his resurrection, he is making it possible to bring everything back but now Paul in this passage is turning from the everything aspect to you and me. 
And I think we're going to find it very encouraging. So what he does in this passage now is gives us, uh-oh, shoot. Help me out, bud. I hit the wrong button. I don't know what this button is, but it's not the right button. <laughs> there we go. Next instead. Perfect. He gives us three aspects of reconciliation that we're going to see real clearly, one for each verse even. He's going to show us the need for reconciliation. Why is it even needed? He's going to show us the purpose for why Christ reconciled us. And then he's going to show evidence of reconciliation. So let's look at the need for reconciliation. The need for our reconciliation. Before I dig into that, I just need to say, we have a very inflated view of ourselves. We do. And, and um, this whole Barbie world thing is not a new thing. Right? The whole Barbie idea is that you're good, you're awesome, you're a shining star, right? That is not, we all, and we look at like, I am not a shining star, I tell you what. <laughs> but that is, that, that focus, that air that we breathe in this culture that tells you you're amazing is not a new idea. Um, particularly since the 1600s and the Enlightenment, philosophers have been corrupting this idea of what the true self is. And over that time, it is the seeds have grown and spread to the point where for me to challenge you and say you are not a good person is a very offensive idea. If I had told you that in the year 1550, they would have go, yeah, I know. <laughs> and the, the way to to move forward might not have always been clear depending on who was teaching you, but at least everybody at that point knew I'm not a good person. But today, if I tell you you're not a good person, that is not accepted. But here's the thing you're going to see. Paul says you are not a good person. So let's just look. He says, and you, so he's not just talking about that's the plural you. We don't see it in our English, but he means everybody. There's that darn fly again. <laughs> right in the middle. Everybody in the Colossian church and everybody reading this letter, you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So let's talk about that first one, alienated. Alienated means to be made a stranger to, to be estranged from, separated from someone else. The relationship is broken. You are alienated. You've heard of someone being alienated from their family or from a community. That's what it is. We, we acutely can feel that. But the question is, why does Paul say that we're alienated? Again, it goes back to Genesis 3. Mankind sinned, and in Adam all sinned. And the result of disobeying God is this estrangement. The result of disobeying God is alienated. It's what exactly what Paul or Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, your iniquities, your sin have made a separation, boom, between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Before Christ, that was our condition. If you're here today and 
you are not in Christ. And by in Christ, I mean that you have not come to this point in your life where you recognize that that is me and nothing I do is going to change that fact. And I need someone else to fix that. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can fix that. And you rest then on that truth. Until you come to that point, that's still you right now. God's face is hidden from you. He will not look at you because you are covered in sinfulness. It is part of your warp and woof. So Paul goes on though, and he does it not simply enough for us to say, well, you're alienated. I could see someone saying to me that, well, yeah, he's, I'm alienated from him because I do bad stuff sometimes. Paul's like, he knew you'd say that. So he says, you're also enemies. <laughs> I love Denise's face just went, her eyes like, what? You are enemies. That word in the text right there, hostile in mind. Hostile is a word that means you are enemies. Hostility. The Apostle Paul says, before Christ, you were estranged and you were hostile in mind. So does that sound like something really sweet that you like, well, I do bad stuff, but I love Jesus. I know who made me. No. It's got a mind that says, I hate God. And you may profess with your mouth that you don't hate God. But until you are in Christ, you hate God. God says it right there. You're hostile in mind. Our world wants us to say, and I heard someone tell me this the other day. They're, and and th they're coming from a state of really brokenness and, and addiction and messed up. I get that. But they believed the lie that I'm not a bad person, they told me. He said, I'm not a bad person. I just do bad things. That is not what Paul says here. He says, you're alienated from God because of your sin and you hate God in your heart. That word mind in there is the same word. If you take the Greek Testament of the old, uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Septuagint. You may have heard of that. It's the Bible that Jesus probably had to use when he didn't have scrolls. Paul, we know, used it because he quotes from it. We can tell the translations. It's the same word for heart in the Old Testament. Lave in the Hebrew, heart. You are hostile in your heart towards God. That was our position. And if I I'll say it again, if you are not in Christ, if you are not trusting in him today, right now for your salvation this is you. You're separated from God and you hate him. I can't say it any stronger. You hate God. You may say not, but God says otherwise. He goes, and this is all over. Paul says this all the time. This is not, you know, maybe they say, well, Paul, you're, you're picking and cherry picking verses. Nope. <laughs> Paul says this all over the place. Ephesians 4.18, he's talking about the state before Christ. He says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And just a few chapters before that verse, he says it even stronger. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were unable to choose Jesus because your deadness of your heart, you hated him. 
He says, in which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Take that, Barbie. That is not a pleasant view of human nature, but that is what God says about us. Um, Paul says it in Romans 8. He says, this is kind of the way your mind is going to work apart from the spirit of God doing something. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. He says, for a mind that is set on the flesh is Hostile, there it is again, an enemy of God. For it does not submit or obey God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what he says about our state. If I was to stand up here today and tell you, apart from Jesus Christ, you're good people, you just do bad stuff, you should fire me. That is not what the God of the Bible, the one who made and sustains all things, the one to whom and through whom all things exist, says, you rebelled against me. I made you, I loved you, I gave you everything, and you and me were all with Adam in that garden. And we sinned and we chose to. What's interesting is Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't say just alienated. He doesn't say just hostile in mind. He says, you did evil deeds. It's almost like, duh. <laughs> Look at the verse. I'm not going to pull it back up on there, but it says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Think about this. If our minds are this way, alienated and estranged and we hate him, then this next sentence that John Kitchen says makes complete sense. What we think with our minds shows up in our actions. He wouldn't have to just say, you were doing evil deeds. He wanted to show the why you do bad things. We do bad things because we hate God. Our flesh, unredeemed, still hates God. In fact, we even read it this morning or, or this Thursday night when we were talking about prayer. The things of the flesh are against the things of the spirit. You don't want to pray part of you because you still have that old flesh that's being wiped out. As we're about to see. You need a savior. And if this is not enough to show you, here's the good news. This is the good news. Well, actually, this is not the good news. I forgot to put this in there and didn't put it in my notes. This is true too. <laughs> Romans, Paul starts off the book of Romans talking about this downward spiral of how people do this. It starts here, and you'll see it in the passage, and works its way out in the evil deeds. For although they knew God, in other words, and he says, you, you know that you, who made you. You know you were made by God. Although they knew him, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. All things that happened in the head and the heart. But they became futile where? Not in their deeds yet, in their thinking, in their foolish hearts were darkened. And then he goes on and says a lot of other things, all related. And he gets to verse 28. He says, in since... Because they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God said, fine. You want it? You made your bed. Now sleep in it. He says, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. See how the first part is your thinking, hostile to God. Now it comes out in deeds. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is why we were here or why we needed a savior. And here's the thing, those verses before we get to these verses, talk about the one who's supreme, the flight has got you too. Somebody got a swatter? The one who is supreme of all, over all creation, who created it all, who holds it all together, confined himself to a body. This is Christmas. He incarnated. He took on flesh to be killed on a cross to restore the ruptured relationship we have. Paul says in Romans 5, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That is the good news. So Paul has to first, he can't just come to you and say, oh, you're just, you're good people. You're just doing bad stuff. It would, the, the reason for Jesus would be like, well, he just need Dr. Oz or something to help you clean up your life. <laughs> Dr. Phil, I mean, well, maybe both of them. I don't know, <laughs> right? But that's not what he says. He says it's far worse a situation than you know. This is why now it makes sense. The next verse in our passage, he's going to tell us the purpose of our reconciliation. So we saw the reason for it, the need for it, is because we are not just bad doing bad things, but we are in and through ourselves corrupt. If you think otherwise, just reflect for a little bit. Are you perfectly holy? And that's all that God requires. That's all. <laughs> it's everything. He requires complete holiness. And we failed. And he knew, he knew, he knew that we could not do it. We could not make it up. We would be in that, if purgatory existed and it doesn't, if it did exist, you'd be there forever. Because the idea is to get out of there by doing good deeds wherever that is. You'd never get out. It doesn't even make sense because you'd never get out. But here he tells us the reason why Jesus came not just the need, but the reason why. So let's look at the, the next sentence in the verse. He says, let me start at the beginning. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now, now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. There was a need for a reconciliation. He came to restore it, but he had a purpose. And we're going to see here, this is God's goal for your life. You, know, you ever heard the, the, tack, the, the whole track that God has a wonderful plan for your life? That's it. 
God's wonderful plan for your life is holy, blameless, and above reproach. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. When you get to the end of time, you'll see what that looks like. Because right now, you're not that, but you're seeing parts of it starting to happen if you're in Christ. And it's a process that'll work all the way to the end. And when you get to the end, this kind of shows us a tiny picture. And Paul's going to tell us more of it through the book of Colossians. Of Jesus almost like bringing the present of a bunch of people that are holy, blameless, and above reproach. And saying, Father, here they are. And when you get there, this is all God will see. The Father will only, only, only see you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. But you say, Paul, what does this mean? Those words sound nice. Let's break them down. Holy means to be set apart for God. Right now, I'm set apart for myself, <laughs> apart for whatever work Christ is doing in me. When I was alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, I was set apart to me. When God is making you holy, and when he gets you to the end, you will be completely set apart for him. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter's talking to the church about what they are. He says, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And I think this little phrase right here captures what it means to be holy, a people for his own possession. You are God's. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted him by faith, you are God's, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Then he also describes us as unblemished. Unblemished. Now, it says in our text, I think, um, yeah, blameless, holy and blameless. And then above reproach. That word blameless is the same word that's used in all the Old Testament language when it's talking about the nature of the kind of sacrifice that they were to bring. How many remember that word when it says, talk about this lamb, what's the word it said? Spotless or unblemished, but spotless. That's what this Greek word means in the Greek there too. Blameless means you are, have a spotless character. When, and, the, and you're like, well, that ain't me right now. If you're in Christ, he's working on you. By God's grace, hopefully you should be able to look back at the last, well, I'd say 15, 20 years, but some of you are only 15, 20 years old. If you just look back percentage-wise over the last half of your life since you've come to Christ, you should be able to see, oh, that character has changed. I'm still a mess, but I'm seeing grace. I'm seeing God working. He's doing something in me. And this verse is saying you will be fully that on that final day when he presents you to Christ, to the Father. It says it here in Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit, Jesus himself was the perfect unblemished lamb who offered himself without blemish to God will purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Jesus is purifying you now. If you are in Christ, he is making you unblemished. So that the time that he calls you home, 
or he comes back to get us. Whichever happens first, boom, it'll be completed. His work will be completed. And his work can't be stopped either, by the way. Are you, you can't say somehow you can stop God's plan of that. Because whatever God starts, he will finish. That should be encouraging to you because you may be a mess today. And you may think about what a mess you are, but God's doing something. As you submit to him, he is making you into an unblemished person. Finally, I love this last one. Unblameable. The text says above reproach, but I put unblameable because it's about the best way I can describe it. People will not be able to on that final day say, well, they did this or they did that. What's hard for me to get my head wrapped around is because I did do things that you could put charges against. They're real things that happened in real history. Somehow, in God's perfect economy, he's able to take the righteousness of Christ and put it on me so that when I stand before him, I truly am like Christ who was standing before the Pharisees and staring before Herod and standing before Pilate, and they threw all kinds of charges at him. And none of them could stick, could they? They were all false, all lies. The only way when you get to heaven and God presents you, Jesus presents you before the Father, that this can be true. If you just think, okay, well, I did this. I did this. I lost my temper. I said this. I committed this sin. You're like, how in the world does that get erased? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become, not just be like, but become the righteousness of God. So that when you stand before God, they can throw the accusations at you and none will stick because you will have the righteousness of Christ on you. That's why he'll be able to do that. No one And the one that will try to do this, because by the time you stand before God at that final judgment, when everyone is there, no one else will be there human-wise that can actually throw any charges because everyone stands and has to answer, right? There will be one though. This is pictured in Zechariah and then fleshed out in Revelation. The prophet Zechariah says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan. Satan standing at his right hand to do what he does best, to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And that pictures my life. I was in the fires and God picked me out. All of us were in that. All of us were alienated. All of us were hostile in mind. All of us were doing evil deeds. And God said, nope, nope, nope. That's awesome. That's awesome truth. And it says, now Joshua standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. That's us, friends. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away. All those charges that can be thrown at you from your past, take them away and I will clothe you with pure vestments. 
And you get to the book of Revelation and John sees this vision. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. We know that. That's the only one who will stand there at the final day and try to throw them, but it will all fail. The biggest throwdown in history will happen. Amen. Amen? That is some good news, my friends. Now, here's the thing. That holy, blameless, holy, unblemished, and unblameable probably doesn't feel like it right now, does it? I mean, just reflect on how you did this morning trying to get here. <laughs> Maybe your mind was whatever. Even if it was not, per- if you got up and you didn't lose your cool or anything, but you still were not completely holy, sold out on God, worshiping him, and there was no distractions in your mind. That ain't happened to any of us. I don't care how great you are. We're not perfect, but this is happening. It is happening and it will happen. It's a process that God determines on his timeline and how he wants it to look, but it will happen. I'm a data guy. I love charts, especially like little nice little line charts. Amen? Amen. 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 Where Where are my data nerds? If you look at a growth chart of your life, Okay, and it's supposed to reflect how close to holy and blameless you are, and the target is Christ's perfection. All of us will look at it'll look like a straight line. But if you take one person and you zoom in so close into that line, you're going to see it go like this, and eventually it'll get to somewhere. Christ takes you home, and boom, you're there, at perfect, holy, blameless, and above reproach. For each of us, though, it's a different trajectory. If you even talk more about numbers, the change, the amount of change, the deviation and how much it grows is different for each of us. The thing is, it has to be changing, though. And Paul's about to say there needs to be something happening to show that this has happened. So let's look at the evidence of our reconciliation, the evidence of our reconciliation. He says here in the next phrase, if, and let me read the sentence, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed... You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Let me just break that down a little bit, and then we'll tackle a challenge, I think, that may come into your mind if you're reading carefully. The first thing he says is that if you continue in the faith, stable. That word is a beautiful... Paul, as we're going to get into more Colossians, loves to use really two kinds of groups of words that are very vivid adjectives. He likes to use building words and he likes to use ground farming kind of words in this book. And right here, this is one of them that talks about laying a firm foundation, like a cornerstone. 
First Peter 2, 4 through 6 says, you, people in Christ, come to him who was a living stone. Pastor Matt talked about this, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up on that one. So if you're a living stone, you're not sitting on sand, you're sitting on the rock of Christ. That's why you're a stable you're going to be stable. You're stabilized, uh, being built up as spiritual stones to be a holy priesthood, priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture: "Behold, I am laying a Zion in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame." What's really interesting about this word "stable"? It, it's hard to see it in the English. It's a participle, which means it's a kind of a verbal kind of thing happening. And it's particularly, it's written in a way grammar-wise that somebody else is doing it. We call it passive. You continue in the faith, but you're being laid on a firm foundation. It's being done to you. Keep that in mind. The next description he uses is steadfast. Steadfast is often translated as immovable. And the word, erdio, comes from the word chair. It's seated, not going anywhere. And again, it's passive. Someone else is seating you on that state of immovability. It says in Ephesians 4.14, this is how God wants us as his children to be so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That is not what God wants for us. He wants us to continue in the faith, steadfast, sitting on firm on the chair, not moving anywhere. Clinging to the truth that Jesus has now reconciled you and he will do this work, okay? The third characteristic he says that you need to not be, you need to continue in. In this case, he says not shifting. I, I, I thought of this, how many of ever had a, uh, a transmission slipping? Some of you know what I'm talking about. The gear is not staying in place. That's kind of the word I was thinking of as I was looking at that and studying this. It's not slipping. It's not compromising. It's locked in on the hope of the gospel. That's what he says in the verse. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Here's the thing, and we have seen this acutely even in our own church, and it hurts. But we've seen it, and it's true what Paul said to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's going to happen. Some people are going to shift. Some people are going to say, mm, and they make little compromises. They start asking, they start listening to that voice. This is, did God really say? They start challenging the Bible. That's when it starts to happen. Paul's saying the evidence of someone who's reconciled is that they don't do that. They don't. And when that lie comes, you say, no, Satan, no, 
the truth of God stands. Jesus Christ has reconciled me. I'm a mess, but I'm trusting in him. I'm not going anywhere. Now, this verse, I should have put another slide instead of back and forth, back and forth, can be scary. Okay? If you're reading this carefully, there's a big if there. And I, I, I think, hopefully, you're, you're like me, and you sometimes wonder, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it all the way to the end? And I'm not thinking, worried about God. I'm worried about me. Am I, am I the real deal sometimes? Maybe some of you don't. I could use that strong faith. <laughs> but I think we look at this and say, if, well, what if I'm not part of the if? What do I have to keep doing here? Um, in one sense, these kinds of verses like this, where it says, if indeed you do this, they function as a warning to you and me. They scare the you-know-what out of us. If you're thinking carefully, this should scare you a little bit. I do not want to be the one who shifts. I do not want to slip gears. I do not want to drift. God, I, don't, I want to stay. I want to be presented holy, blameless, and re above reproach before God. If that's your fear... And your response to that fear is, okay, I got to get back. I got to do the things I know, trusting in Christ, looking to him. Then that verse accomplished what it wanted to do. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes Paul writes these warnings. The author of Hebrews writes these warnings like this. Peter writes warnings like this. And one fun function of them is for true believers to kind of kick you in the pants and say, don't do that. So the recent fall that we saw and spent many weeks on in Sunday school talking about the whole LGBT mess, that should be a warning to us. It should be, don't move from this. Don't doubt it, trust it, and if you want to be presented before God, sit on that truth. Now, here's the thing, though. You cannot fall prey to thinking that this means I have to muster the strength. This verse does not mean that though. It doesn't mean pull up your bootstraps. Because those words, the only, only one of them that's not passive is the not shifting. Stable and steadfast is showing that God already planted you there. <laughs> keep on that. Just keep on. John Piper says this helpful. Let me get to my slide. Did I put the quote? I did. He says this if should not make us think we are insecure in our salvation. Here's what he says. He says, because God has pledged himself on the basis of his own faithfulness that he will fulfill this condition in and through us. He will cause us to continue in the faith. If you've come to Christ he says, the apostle Paul says, God's going to finish this work, folks. Let me show you. As we wrap up here, let me just show you where he says that. Romans 8, 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen to this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed 
to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I left off verse 30. Let me get there because you got to hear this. Why did I leave off verse 30? I got 29. I just didn't get 30. Okay. And those, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word glorified means that final day when you stand before Christ. This verse says, all the called are justified. And then it says, all the justified are glorified. That is an unbroken chain. You will be brought to the end. If you are in Christ, you're trusting him only. All the called will be justified and all the justified will be glorified. There are no dropouts. As John Piper said, there's no dropouts in that verse. You're like, okay, well, maybe cling to that one, but cling to this one too. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, God will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How do you know that tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're going to be a Christian still? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. He will carry you through. Philippians 1.6, Paul says this, I kind of think so, uh, maybe. No, he says, I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will finish it. Amen? Let's participate together in the Lord's table. If I could have the men come forward for our time around the table together. Here at Edgewood, we, we celebrate communion together. You do not have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be in Christ. The Apostle Paul even gives warnings that if you are not in Christ, if you are if you've never come to him and trusted him alone, then don't do this, what we're about to do. Just listen, observe, and, and consider what you heard this morning in the message. He also says, though, to examine yourselves because he says the idea is that if any of you have sin that you're not dealing with, I don't mean sinlessness, but sin that you refuse to deal with, he also says, don't, don't participate because you'll ju drink judgment on yourself. I don't fully get what that means, but it sounds awfully scary, so don't do it, right? right? But he does say, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he did these things, right? So it was the Passover, the last Passover he was having with his disciples. And if you know anything about the Passover, the Passover has several instances where they are taking unleavened bread, breaking it, and praying and thanking God for what he did, redeeming them from the 
from Egypt, from slavery. We do the same thing right now. We think about the goodness of God and the fact that he would deliver us from slavery to sin. So take a minute to reflect. There's these are double cups. So if you're not familiar with this, we have the bread in the bottom of it. Just one, take it out and we'll separate it. he was betrayed he took bread it says he broke it and blessed it and said this is my body which is broken for you this do as often as you eat it in remembrance of me it says in the same way after supper took the cup, the cup of redemption. It says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us. The death that you died on the cross your son died on the cross and you father poured out your wrath you turned away from him you could not look on him because of our sin yet he took it all he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of god through this body and blood of jesus christ who also rose from the dead and we proclaim his death now till you return. Let me close you in this benediction. And think about this in light of that big if, if indeed you continue. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.